Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Deep Conversations with Uli Bear on Big Ideas and Great Books. I'm really happy today to welcome Cleo McNally Cairns, who, is, uh, who I've actually had the pleasure of interacting with before. And I want to introduce you first as a scholar of anthropology, philosophy, and religious studies. You've written books on T.S. Eliot and Indic traditions, and also on the Virgin Mary, Motherhood, Sacrifice, and Monotheism. They're both published by Cambridge University Press. You've taught at Rutgers, Princeton Theological Seminary, New York University, correct? That's correct. And uh, you wrote a very uh, important essay on Mark Twain's Adventures of Huckleberry Finn in an anthology that the late scholar Harold Bloom published as one of many, many anthologies he published of kind of outstanding literary criticism. That is where I first uh, saw this piece on Huckleberry Finn. And I wanted to talk to you today because that book, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, is yet again or remains to be kind of in the discussion of our culture. And it's one of the, maybe not few, but one of the books that actually plays out in many bigger, larger cultural context than just literary criticism. It always had an impact way beyond its own space of just a novel that young people read or people read in school. Yes. Well, uh, to, to frame this a little bit, I, I had a long car journey today and I was listening in the car to an Audible Books version of this. So this is me hearing this text, which has been with me since childhood. Uh, many, many, many decades later, and hearing it, of course, with different ears. And one of the things that might be interested to talk about is how differently I hear it now than I heard it when I wrote that piece, and then I heard it when I was 10. <laughs> so um, That's quite interesting that we start out by you listening to a recording. There's actually a very important connection. So Ralph Ellison, who was a professor at New York University for many, many years. Ralph Ellison had a student named Don Katz, who I met later. And in the, I think, maybe early 80s, Don Katz was Ellison's student, and he took uh, first a class in an independent study. And Ellison said, 
the key to understanding the genius of American literature is American vernacular and spoken dialect and the huge range of dialects spoken by Americans in this country. And he said, you have to listen to spoken American English to understand the true genius of what American literature can be. And it was interesting that Ellison said that because Twain is often considered one of the few people who had mastered so many different dialects and captured them in his book. And I think Twain said about Huckleberry Finn at some point, do not make the mistake and think all these people are trying to sound one way. They all sound the way they do because they speak a different kind of English. And Ellison, who wrote a very important essay about Mark Twain, actually, and about uh, Huckleberry Finn and L. Ralph Waldo Ellison said as, you know, a black novelist who writes Invisible Man in 1951, he really engaged deeply with Huckleberry Finn, which had been handed down to him. And for me, that's how the book has been. It arrives in two ways. It arrives the way it arrived for you. I read it as a child or as an adolescent, as a kind of adventure tale, very thrilling, very exciting. I love to identify with these boys. And then it also arrives again in academia uh, with the imprimatur of people like Faulkner saying, Twain is the father of American literature. Hemingway saying, this is the one book from which all of American literature springs. Ellison saying, Toni Morrison saying, this is the book you must engage with, for better or for worse. Maybe it's also deeply upsetting and frustrating. Ellison Morrison said this amazing, troubling book. But to go back to what you just said, maybe to start us out, your two encounters or three encounters. You encounter with it today, you encounter in the, I think, 80s when you wrote this very insightful essay on the character Jim, really, and his ability in that book. And then your own first encounter with that book in childhood and adolescence. Where were you when you were reading it first? Well, it was a gift from my grandfather. My grandfather died in the 1970s. He graduated from Dartmouth College. He was a New England rural kid. He graduated from Dartmouth College in the in the 1890s. Um, and he was a very major figure in my life. And he gave it to me. He had had a, an edition of it illustrated by Norman Rockwell, bound in beautiful dark green leather with gold trim on it. And he gave it to me ceremonially. <laughs> really? So, uh, so th that that you know indicates a certain transmission, um, and a certain awareness on his part, which was quite conscious that he was he was transmitting our culture to me. Um, so, so it it came with all of that, and it came with those Norman Rockwell illustrations. I don't have that book in my possession because I gave it to my son. So, <laughs> and but I. Where was this? Where did your grandfather give it? Where were you living at this time? We were living in Cleveland, Ohio at the time. My grandfather grew up here in rural Vermont in the valley where I'm now living. Um, his father was professor of music at Dartmouth and his mother was a local girl and he was raised here on, on this farm by his mother and his uncle. And um, he was very much of a Yankee and also a great reader and a, and a, um, a, a major force in my life, but we were living at that time in Cleveland, Ohio. Mm -hmm. And I uh, was forever trying to figure out how I could light out for the territories. Um, I didn't like city living. I didn't like where we lived. 
I didn't like Cleveland. <laughs> and I was I was looking for first the Ohio wilderness of my childhood, which was very in that time, very lush. And then uh, when I was eight, he took us back to Vermont. And, and at that point, he sent us back every summer to Vermont to work on this farm. So this was part of, an, of a New England heritage for me that was delivered to me in that way. And of course, it was an incredible read, right? Yeah. And I read it with great, great passion um, great appreciation, I think, for the the humor and the dialect, but also with that childish desire to find myself in that text. And of course, I found myself in Huck. And of course, I was only a girl. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so already there's a certain dualism. And, and I, 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 one thing I knew about myself, I did not know myself well, but I knew that I was not Becky Thatcher. Okay. <laughs> so it had that that ambivalence and that beauty for me. And then I went on to read other Twain. And in my innocence, in that I read King, uh, Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, and I I I simply missed the farce. I got entranced with the whole medieval world, and I'm reading about knights and ladies and kings, and I completely missed the farce. So I'm not, I don't want to make a case for my reading skills. But anyway, I think it's interesting that I had that transmission at that time. And the only thing I remember about the illustrations, I'll just make this point, and then I want to hear what you have to say, is there was an illustration of Pap that Norman Waffle had done that captured how terrifying he was. And I'll say I'll say more of that as we go on, but that that's just interesting. But that's quite striking. It so you already from this picture you saw this is a this is a adventure tale. It invites identification. Huck's an exciting character, but he comes from real trauma, from real. Yep. Yep. So yep. the world is full of scary things for him. It's not society's well ordered. Why did you think Huck was the identification figure for you? And you said the childish identification. I'm kind of interested in that because I think it's okay to read and identify with characters. Oh, I do too. <laughs> I think it's a very powerful mode of engaging. I think what's remarkable when what you said earlier, when we read books when we're young and then we reread them again, and we also can encounter ourselves again and say, oh, I connected to this. And now I would think, wow, well, Huck, for example... Huck does some of these things he does because he has desperately to get away from this murderous, horrible fiend yeah. of a father, and yeah. he fakes his own death, and he's really running away from terror. Very yeah. different from what Jim is running away from, but yeah. he's not just on a ramp. Yeah, it. yeah. Oh, yes, it's just so, so correct. And so, um, yes, uh, I, I, can, I don't want to get out of the chronology here, but reading, hearing it this time, First of all, in in my childhood and even in the eighties, when I wrote about it, we didn't we weren't we weren't trading around the meme of child abuse the way we are today, right? Mm -hmm. There was no name for it, mm -hmm. and and it was not in my experience with whatever problems I may have had with my dear with my dear family that was not one of them. <laughs> so uh, the the terror of that I think was was impressive to me even as a child, but it, this time listening to it in the car, 
I was really struck by it. Call this a government? Why, just look at it and see what it's like. Here's the law standing ready to take a man's son away from him. A man's own son, which he has had all the trouble and all the anxiety and all the expense of raising. Yes, just as that man has got that son raised at last and ready to go to work and begin to do something for him and give him a rest, the law up and goes for him. And they call that government. That ain't all, nother. The law backs that old Judge Thatcher up and helps to keep me out of my property. Here's what the law does. The law takes a man worth $6,000 in upwards and jams him into an old trap of a cabin like this and lets him go round in clothes that ain't fitting for a hog. They call that government. It is just exactly what we're up against today in this culture. It is, it's a brilliant encapsulization of that hatred of learning, that fundamental racist entitlement, and that poignant, blowhard, powerless quality, you know? Um, we're laughing at him. We're colluding with his oppression. We're laughing at him as such an ignorant man thinking that, thinking that his vote would count for anything. You know, why does it matter that, isn't it funny that Pap says he won't vote? It's just, it, it just hit me in, a, in an entirely new way. But I also think it's interesting what you say that we really didn't have a vocabulary in the 80s even for what has really become so at least acknowledged, thankfully, people can name it right away and say it's child abuse. But what is at stake there, what you just said, that Pap thinks I cannot allow the government or other people to civilize my son. That's the word they use. That what's yeah. being done to in the first place. He's civilized, but in some ways, this the sense of whose children are America's children. Sort of mm -hmm, the, mm -hmm. the debate, which is maybe one of the many ironies around this book. That this book is now again in the kind of crosshairs of various cultural wars because people should not be subjected to this book. <laughs> he writes a book for children about a child whose father says, how dare somebody else make my child into this new thing that I'm not, that go, turns against me. The yes. portrayal of, a profound portrayal of me and the government is at fault in this in a way, everybody else is at fault. And do you see any pathos in that kind of speech also that oh. have also been wronged? Absolutely. It's hard to say, hard to say because he's so violent and cruel, but he also has nowhere to turn except against his own son, probably, and against himself. Yes, and and his sense of his own of his own degradation is is very strong there. Oh, it's it's it, the the shifting of your moral frame and your assumptions and your consciousness is so exquisite in this book, and it's so deft, and the timing of it is so deft. You know that I I don't think I'm I'm just once again dazzled by the by the. It's a remarkable thing what you said. So that you said you don't want to lose the chronology, but. I wonder when, when you were when you were given this book by your grandfather as a kind of um, introduction to say this is who we are. This is a yeah. very important mm -hmm. who we are. But certain things you probably read right over. You thought, uh -huh. oh, he's a bad father, and this is scary, and then you move yep. on. Yeah, exactly. It was very, very scary. But say, well, there's scary things in children's stories because we have gothic stories and horror stories, all the ghost stories. But you exactly. read over it now. You read it with what you just said. 
this is an allegory of actually the political state of the country. People feel disenfranchised. They feel maligned. They are furious. They want somebody else to punch down on. So this mm-hmm. man becomes a person like, well, I'm I'm disempowered by the government. At least I can punch some, put somebody off the sidewalk. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and I, I have to say, uh, to jump ahead also, that this time, again, listening to it in the car today, I had that I, I had an old Rastafarian friend long ago in the day, and he 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 was fond of quoting a, a Rasta proverb. What's joke to me is what's what's joke to you is death to me. Mm-hmm. Right. And I just felt I, I we DC my sister and I were listening to this and we're we love the same things in the same way, had the same formation. And occasionally we had a good laugh. Mm-hmm. But I have to say my general affect was, this is not funny. Mm-hmm. And that would not have been the case, I think. I, I think in, in, when I wrote the, the piece on the semiotics of Jim, I was getting there. But not the way I am right now, because there was still, a, certainly in my childhood, there was a, first of all, it was, there was a, we are Yankees, we are not those Southerners thing behind that. Um, but there was also a sense of this problem, this is no longer a real problem that we, we can enjoy it because it's over. Right. Right? Right. Beginning to break down in the 80s, I mean, certainly breaking down for me long before that, I was an activist from from very, very long before that. But now fully recognizing we are right there. We are right there where that book was. It's interesting and in what you're saying there's it's the book is often still kind of advertised and sold and people say, oh, it's so funny and so much humor. And he's the greatest humorist. And when I reread it, I really didn't find it funny. I did not find it funny. I kind of thought, okay, sometimes, you know, humor on the page I find hard to take anyways. But I thought what you just said, um, 150 years after sort of the Civil War, we cannot really think, oh, it's funny that this is over and this used to be such an absurd situation. First of all, we've learned that it was life or death, as you said, for most people. What's a joke to me is death, to use death for me. Secondly, I think the fact that we're still unresolved on many of these issues that come up in the book, and the race relation is probably one of the central, if not the central one, it kind of makes your laughter die in your throat. You're thinking, uh, what is funny here, actually? Yeah, and, yeah, 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 yeah. The book actually is ahead in a certain way, but also the book was supposed to help probably maybe resolve some of these things. And we're still there today. It's an interesting response that you said, now you don't think it's as humorous anymore. But then at the same time, you're saying the book anticipates a lot of things that are so urgent for us today in 2023. Yeah, yeah. I was struck this time. I, I had really forgotten the whole uh, Grangerford family and, and friend Buck. And first of all, I I was really struck with the tragedy of that feud yeah. and of these deaths, which also affect Huck so strongly. Yeah. Huck is really devastated. And uh, when he gets back on the raft, I, I, I was so struck by this. Um, he's He's been crying for, for days. He's had to bury his, his friend. Yeah. And <laughs> and uh, Jim just picks him up and hugs him. Yeah. And this is straight out of trauma therapy, you know, that you, you can, you, you, the first thing you do with somebody who's traumatized is instantly reduce the, the neurological load on them. 
if you can. And all these studies show that if children are hugged and comforted fairly soon after the traumatic event, it does not operate forever in the way that it can, at least to some extent. So again, I was struck by, and one of the things I felt there on the on the level of the artistry was the way in which, and this will get us to the problem of the ending too, um, the way in which Twain gets into these scenes, which he has beautifully reimagined and evoked. They begin to take a power on a power of their own. And within a very short time, he's in danger of falling out of his genre. Uh He's he's edging toward either tragedy or a deeper kind of novel or, God forbid, Uncle Tom's Cabin probably looms over him as what not to do. <laughs> yeah, sentimental novel, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the the need not to write a tract. Remember that famous statement he made early on, anyone who reads a moral in this will be shot, that the famous three lines, you know. But um, but he's he has he has aesthetic. He has aesthetic danger on every side. Right, right. And including the danger of staying in in the genre he's chosen. Yeah, yeah. And um, I just... Um, it's just it was, what you say that he's he's guarding himself to lapse into some other genre, which he probably thinks would have compromised the book. Um, there's an interesting... Toni Morrison makes his interesting remarks. She, she said they are um, profoundly realized and significant moments met with startling understatement or shocking absence of any comment at all. And they constitute the invitation that Twain offers, which I could not refuse. So Tony, oh, lovely, oh, lovely quote. Lovely. She marks these moments and she says, it sort of jump cuts sometimes. And people have always remarked, wait, the chapter ends and where are we now? Or something as mm-hmm. skips over. I think Morrison was is one of the many readers who says, well, this is deliberate and this actually kind of puts us as readers in the position to fill out what has not happened here because he's so good at these incredibly moving um, descriptions, per- perfectly, profoundly realized, she calls them. And then the next one is shockingly understated. So you sort yes. of know, you know he could do it and he doesn't do it for you. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I think that would be very interesting to, to trace that very carefully in the um in the the death of the feud which kills his friends and he has to if you remember he has to pull their bodies out of the mississippi river Mm. and um and he said and he says that he's having trouble telling the story to us right because it's making him feel very bad and he says um he just mentions retrieving the bodies and he mentions that he had to bury them and then he says there is more to that than i'm saying but i don't want to say it because it will make me feel even even worse i'm i'm mangling this really forgive me you know i'm quoting from memory or really just trying to evoke it it's an amazing it's, statement right that it's, it's an amazing happened. statement of the 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 classic sense of of great artists that you come up to the to the actual gruesome tragedy, and you don't represent that. It's classic, you know, it's Greek, Greek tragedy, essentially. I'm really interested in that, these moments. And I think before we get sort of to what happens toward the end and what people have responded to, the essay you wrote, you took an interest in Jim. And in some ways, there's Jim, who's been a kind of um, figure of strong identification for many years. And then there's a kind of letdown and we can talk about the ending in a bit, but let's start out with Jim because he's, in your essay, you describe it as a kind of expert at 
reading all the signs around him because he has to actually constantly be on lookout to any kind of indication of what's going to happen next could be his life or death or being sold mm -hmm. back right and then he also himself is a really great creator of signs and deceptions. Uh -huh. <laughs> so he's totally capable of both not just passively reading or observing and acting in response to it, but also creating all sorts of situations for Huck, for himself, for others to read and misread deliberately. Yes. And you just was on Jim in that way, not necessarily starting out saying, is he, you know, a fully realized human being, which he is, I think, for most of the novel, but you focused on this kind of dimension of reading science. Yes, and this time reading, hearing it again, I was struck by the way that that theme of the interpretation of signs is really right from the beginning. Uh, you know, Huck has this whole repertoire of kind of rather thin superstitions. Mm -hmm. um, white, one degree re removed from any serious magic, these kinds of thin <laughs> interpretations. And Tom Sawyer, of course, has gotten all tangled up in book learning. Yeah. So his his interpretation of his gang work, the, the hilarious, which really is funny, where he he's read in books that if you have a gang, what does a gang do? It kills people and takes them captive and then it ransoms them. And somebody says, well, what is a ransom? He says, I don't know, but we're going to ransom them to death. You know, the 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 verbal written sign versus the rather thin and deracinated oral tradition that Huck represents versus the kind of of, of deeper, um, more more magical and perhaps more more slightly African concept that Jim has of interest. It was just more interesting to me than I even thought at this time. Um, and Jim's role. So let's let's you know, it's worth reminding I think our listeners. So Jim is uh, a runaway slave. They encounter each other on this island. Huck is tremendously relieved that the person he runs into when he's hiding is Jim and immediately feels reassured for two reasons, that he trusts Jim because he knows him really well. And now he has a companion to go on this kind of escape on and they become each other's alibi. So mm -hmm. they actually depend on each other. So, uh, and uh, Jim knows Huck's secret that he faked his death and pretends to run away. And then, Jim will carry a much deeper secret for the entire river journey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that this time through, I um I was I was caught off guard by um first of all, I wanted to say in, in respect, of course, the the it's it's what's a joke to you is death to me, is the way black people always read it. Right. I mean, we're, you know, we're just catching up with the with the way they've always read it. And uh, kudos to Ellison and Toni Morrison for their capacity to endure that, to endure that book. Right. As as a kind of ordeal for them of initiation into American culture that is is really remarkable. And we can talk about that in relation to your work on on these um, on this body of work, which I which I love. Really, I, I really like what you're doing. But um, there was that moment where I'm reading along and somehow in my mind, and I think this is carried over from my first reading as a child. As a child, I thought of Jim as a kind of um, either as as Huck's equal in a way. Okay. And in a sense, I, I knew that Jim was older than Huck. But in my mind, I think sort of subconsciously, he was maybe 17, 18. 
right? You know? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you know, well into the book, you realize he has, a, you're told he has a wife and children. Right. And there's a kind of, oh, oh my goodness, uh, you know, to me as a white reader, because I had infantilized him and minstrelized him in my reading to be younger, less resourced, less mature, less rooted in a, in a, family and sociology of his own, right, you know, um, and that was really interesting to me um, in that, in this reading. But there's, it's quite an interesting relationship. I think it's really a, a great enigma in a way, and it's kind of, to me, very depressing that it's still an enigma, that so there's a black and white friendship, and it crosses lines of race and class and age, and in a certain way, gender, and it's somehow been a complete scandal always. Yeah. Uh, Ralph Ellison says something quite interesting. So Leslie Fidler in the 1950s, a literary critic, has this kind of essay which made a bit of waves, I think, at the time. It's called Come, ba Come Back to the uh, Raft, Huck Honey. And it's on homosexuality in this. And they see that they basically have this kind of homosexual, homosexual re social relation. And Ellison says, completely wrong and absurd. And Fidler, of course, in this limited way, sees a black and white relationship of affection, care, mutual respect, deception, a very human relationship. They mm -hmm. meet each other, they don't totally trust each other, they grow into this very deep relationship as we know, but they don't start out there. And so Ralph Waldo Ellison, the African-American writer says, so of course Fiedler has to give it some name he pulls almost out of a hat, that this is a scandal. And he said he could have called it incest, rape, pedophilia, or anything else. He said it doesn't even matter as long as it's off the acceptable grid of moral behavior. Yes, yes. That's and very acute. Yeah, it's yeah. very acute because it sort of says this is not locked into, oh, it's, a, it's an allegory of some other thing. He says, no, it's a scandal for the critics who don't know what to do, so they have to somehow actually denigrate it, strangely mm -hmm. by mm -hmm. humbly exposing this kind of dark secret. And then Ellison and, uh, as, and Morrison, as you said, in some ways good for them to endure it. They had no choice. They just read this book like everybody okay. else. Yep. Yep. What they're tapping into, I read another essay, which was really remarkable. It said the book became a sort of school book and assigned in the 1950s. And then it generated a huge discussion because schools were integrated and you had classrooms full of black and white children and they had to read the same book. And in this book, you have not only the N-word, but what you said, you have... Jim, for a long time, being not quite fully realized in the way that he's a grown man with a wife and children who's fearing mm -hmm. children. At the same time, he becomes this really wonderful father figure to Huck. And so they said the book became a really important book in the kind of beginning of the second wave of the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s when school were desegregated because it played out in schools. And there's something here that it became kind of this primer of how to be an American. And then we can go back to who are people supposed to identify with as a child? Yeah. If you identify with Huck, you have this relationship to Jim. And maybe I would love to ask you about this moment. So this incredibly dramatic moment when Huck thinks, well, I'm down going down the river with Jim but I better turn him in because otherwise I'll go to hell. It goes against not only the legal system of my country and the moral order of my community, but it goes against religion itself. Being mm -hmm. an abolitionist or helping a slave run away is an evil thing to do. And mm -hmm. Huck 
who already feels about my community, I don't have one and I'm not really exactly educated and I don't have a lot of chances in this country, but I don't want to go to hell. And at this moment, for me, Wayne did something really interesting. He says, well, then, if I'm going to do something, I might as well decide to do this and not go to hell. And I'm going to do it. And Huck says, I have not as much to lose as other people, but I will have my conscience. But he ultimately turns on a dime in a very brief moment when he's just about to sell out a chair. And it's a terrible moment, but I think- also- Terrible moment. It's, it's talk about a crisis. It, it defines crisis. <laughs> and the crisis then is, of course, much bigger suddenly than Huck. And I think as a child, you have an intuition. This is a bigger deal than just yeah, 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 being nice yeah. to my friend. Am I going to be, yeah, because yeah. Huck has played a trick on Jim before, there's kind of, these are games, but you, you somehow as a child, I think you intuitively realize there's something far more at stake here in this relationship than you can even fathom. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I felt listening to it today, there's more at stake here than I can fathom fathom now. <laughs> I really, which is of course what makes it a classic. Um, let me go back one step to the censorship issue. I think it was, there's an essay in that Bloom Anthology that I skimmed the other day, which tells me, which I had not known, that was censored in Twain's time as well. And Twain said the, the book was banned somewhere. I think it was once banned in, in the Mark Twain High School in Virginia at one point, they, they banned it, right? Um, and Twain and said, oh, great, $35,000 worth of sales right there. <laughs> Which I think is, is fairly charming. But the, the reception issue on this text, I think, is one of the most fascinating in, in literary history. Um, because that was partly also, um, there's a, a very brilliant book, uh, about called the feminization of American culture, that was written in the seventies, I believe. And had I my wits about me, I could get that is the type that is the correct title. So you can Google it if you, which I urge you to do because it's quite acute on the genteel culture of New England and how feminizing it was in the negative sense. It was a book that got roundly criticized by feminists of the time because she was using feminization as a negative thing. Um, and there were many problems with that book, but she, I think she was pointed to a moment in American culture quite accurately. I think the ori original censorship of the book was around the issue of gentility. It, of course, underneath it's the racism, but it's this is not high culture. Well, I think one of the things I read, which is greatly entertaining, Louisa May Alcott said this book must be banned because it has really bad language and it teaches you to disrespect religion and to have no morality at all. It does not touch on the race issue. It just says this is an amoral book and shouldn't be given to children. Interesting. So in some ways, what you're saying, the genteel, that's interesting, but this book is not a genteel book. This is it's a not a genteel book. <laughs> so we stay with this moment from when Huck has to make this decision. And I'll yeah, read yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm evading thinking about it. It's it's just it's so it's such a I read you the passage. Such a delicate knife point moment that it makes me anxious. To, uh, you think to yourself, if I'm pushed to the edge and I ever have to make a decision like that, will I do it the right way? You know, because he has to. And it's very interesting to me listening to it today that you don't understand there is no thought process in his flipping oh, it wells up it's he just in the end he can't do it 
He can't turn Huck in. He never rationalizes that. He says the only way he rationalizes it, I I think his rationalization was, I'm going to feel terrible if I don't turn him in. I tell you, this is amazing what you said. There's no thought process. He says, and then he says, but I'll feel terrible if I do turn him in. So why don't I take, you know, it's, it's, but at that point, it's just equal, you know, that one, he's going to feel bad either way. Right. What's interesting to me, it feels also what's really remarkable. We're hearing Huck essentially address himself. He's not addressing because he doesn't really have anybody to address. He doesn't really believe in all these educators, people who wanted to, you know, raise him up. He cannot address his own father. He cannot address his one friend, Jim, mm-hmm. and to Tom later. And actually, Tom is not in the picture at all. Here, Huck is really sort of talking to himself. And he says, there's these following two things. It was interesting when you said he just jumps, and it's almost as if he says it and listens to himself. It most froze me to hear such talk. He wouldn't ever dare to talk such talk in his life before. Just see what a difference it made in him the minute he judged he was about free. It was according to the old saying, give a nigger an inch and he'll take an L. Thinks I, this is what comes of my not thinking. Here was this nigger, which I had as good as helped to run away, coming right out flat-footed and saying he would steal his children. Children that belonged to a man I didn't even know. A man that had never done me no harm. I was sorry to hear Jim say that. It was such a lowering of him. My conscience got to stirring me up hotter than ever until at last I says to it, let up on me. It ain't too late yet. I'll paddle ashore at first light and tell. I felt easy and happy and light as a feather right off. All my troubles was gone. I went to looking out sharp for a light and sort of singing to myself. By and by one showed. Jim sings out, we safe, Huck. We safe. Jump up and crack your heels. That's the good old Cairo at last. I just knows it. I says, I'll take the canoe and go see, Jim. It mightn't be, you know. He jumped up and got the canoe ready and put his old coat in the bottom for me to set on and give me the paddle. And as I shoved off, he says, pretty soon I'll be a shouting for joy. And I'll say, it's all on account of Huck. I was a free man, and I couldn't ever been free if it hadn't been for Huck. Huck done it. Jim won't ever forget you, Huck. You's the best friend Jim's ever had, and you's the only friend Jim's got now. I was paddling off, all in a sweat to tell on him, but when he says this, it seemed to kind of take the tuck all out of me. I went along slow then, and I weren't right down certain whether I was glad I started or whether I wanted. When I was 50 yards off, Jim says, There you goes, the old true hook, the only white gentleman that ever kept his promise to old Jim. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. And what's at stake then, I think, when we read it as adults today and in 2023, you think, okay, so Mark Twain puts the entire kind of conscience of the nation on this moment. He said, and awful words and awful, and Mark was not exactly fit to be a founding father of the countries. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All comes down to this. And to go back to your interpretation of Jim, Jim, right before this, has the sense that Huck is a bit off and, and Huck's going to go off and say, I'm just going to like explore the shore. And he wrote this letter, but in reality, he's going to now sell Jim out. And mm-hmm. then Jim says, you've been my only friend. You're the mm-hmm. only person I ever cared for. You're the nicest guy. You are so close to me. I'll be so happy when Huck comes back to the graph because you've been a true friend. And then later on, he says, you've been a true gentleman. Yeah. And Huck takes it in. And I read an essay where someone said, Jim here is not sincere but he knows exactly right yeah 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 yeah. he he knows something's up i mean jim is a very good reader of human signs as well as um natural signs and he he knows he knows huck well and he knows something is up and he's playing huck in a way he's sort of saying i'm gonna absolutely absolutely to your sort of embarrassing wish to be recognized and seen, I'm going to call you a gentleman and my one true friend. So it's appealing once to the, the genuine emotional bond between them. You're my one true friend. So Huck reminded Jim is also my friend. And I'm going to call you a gentleman, which Huck is not. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's good. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Flatters him. And I think that kind of flattery. And in some ways, if we go to the end of the book, which will be in a minute, People have been really, really upset with the ending of the book where Jim is sort of put in this kind of horrible charade of a, of a kind of scheme to liberate him. And he sort of becomes almost more passive than in the beginning when he is very active. Yeah. But someone said he's not at all passive anywhere. He actually knows exactly what role to play to get to where he needs to get, which is to get out of slavery. He said this is not, oh, he's just a kind of nice, obedient you know, deferential enslaved person. They say, oh, no, no, he's playing Huck here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, um, that is a very complicated issue because I'm not sure, I'm not sure Twain knew that at that point. And that's our problem of the ending. But I want to go back to that moment. I mean, I, I you know what I'm saying? I, you know, it's really, hmm, I'm not sure Twain knew that. And I'm not sure Twain... Yeah. Even if he did know it, wanted us to know it. Right. Right. Because he's got to he's got to pull off, he's got to pull his genre back. That's interesting. He's gonna be in tragedy and politics and the whole nine yards if he doesn't pull this thing back quickly, right? You know, and he's up against a fundamental contradiction that exceeds his own it exceeds his own aesthetic capacity. Huh. Okay. Because- I'm, I'm channeling, I'm channeling. Harold here, you know. He would write another book then, right? He would have to write another book. He'd have to write, forgive me, an even greater book. Interesting, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Um, 
uh, yeah, it, 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 to really at that point, he's he's got a, an incredible technical problem there. Right. Right. And of course, he also has no precedent in the in the in the literature around him or behind him for solving that particular technical problem. So it's not like he, he can borrow from it, you know. But in terms of Jim's, um, uh, we can return to that. But in terms of Jim's, one of the things again, listening to it today, was realizing they're all absolutely fabulous performers, right? And Jim is a great performer. He's a great storyteller. He's already made it made a, a great thing for himself out of that really stupid, cruel joke that Tom and Huck play on him early on, where they put it. He's sleeping, and they tie him up and put the hat in the tree, right? And if you re- put his hat in the tree, and then they. He decides to tell people that he was um, taken by witches and he'd been ridden around by witches all night long. And he's become really quite powerful in his community telling this story, right? And um, it's unclear whether Twain intends us to think that Jim himself thinks that that happened to him. At that point, I'm thinking, no, he's he's just presenting. Jim is a good liar and he's a good storyteller, just like Huck, you know? Um, And there's that also that moment where Huck slides off the raft by mistake, um, and he's not in danger of drowning. I mean, they're often they're in and off that raft, raft all the time. But he slides off the raft, and Jim laughs his head off. Hmm. Yeah, it's this is a really subtle book. Let's just say. I think it's something interesting what you're saying. Sort of, you're saying Twain couldn't really have done more to let us really in on the fact that Jim is sort of a fully that fully dimensional person has agency as we love to say in these days <laughs> what is it? has agency as we love to say but other people have said no actually it's the greatness of the book that he does leave us guessing in a certain way and uh. there's something very subtle and very strange of course it's it's almost blocked entirely also i think by the kind of brutality of the n-word that we cannot get out of but yes, there's yeah. something that that maybe there's something here that twain i think why i'm interested in these two moments when huck and tom make up their mind to rescue jim or to save jim we kind of want them to do the right thing and then the book would be really nice to say oh wow it's great so they're two good white boys in 19th century america they do the right thing against mm-hmm. all the things they're like mini abolitionists Mm-hmm, yep. They are really not. Yep. They are not. They're not political. They don't have a sense. They don't want to ever be associated with those bad people who are abolitionists. Yep. They do something which is, you could say, on the one hand, very American kind of. They have a totally individualistic morality. We're doing this right now for this reason. Very pragmatic. We're pragmatic. Not, yep. We're not going to sort of start abolishing slavery as an institution. That's mm-hmm, not. But at the same time, Twain knows, I think, if he gives it to us like that, then it's much harder to sort of file the book away, as you said, as propaganda or saying, OK, well, this is another anti, anti-slavery anti track written 20 years after slavery was abolished, technically. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I, I hadn't seen that. But I, I like that. Yeah, that he he's not he's not going to allow that that cheap cheap ending response you know yeah, we'll, go, we'll go to the ending so i want to give you the the phrase when the when tom has to now make this big decision so tom shows up in the plot and it's kind of funny and strange that he suddenly shows up in disguise and then huck says tom is going to be in on this as well and then he then huck questions tom and says 
dude, you are basically what we work today. You have full on white privilege in spades. You shouldn't be doing this. You sacrifice mm -hmm. more. This is a little speech he gives. We would today say, oh, you're, you're white privilege. Well, one thing was dead sure. And that was that Tom Sawyer was in earnest and was actually going to help steal that nigger out of slavery. That was the thing that was too many for me. Here was a boy that was respectable and well brung up and had a character to lose and folks at home that had characters. And he was bright and not leather-headed and knowing and not ignorant and not mean but kind. And yet here he was without any more pride or rightness or feeling than to stoop to this business and make himself a shame and his family a shame before everybody. I couldn't understand it, no way at all. It was outrageous. And I knowed I ought to just up and tell him so, and so to be his true friend and let him quit the thing right where he was and save himself. And I did start to tell him, but he shut me up and says, Don't you reckon I know what I'm about? Don't I generally know what I'm about? Yes. Didn't I say I was going to help steal the nigger? Yes. Well, then. And it's kind of amazing because I was really interested in this. And so but both times Huck says, well, then, that's the only response he goes, well, then. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. What I'm going to tell you, like, why are you doubting me? And Huck gives him all the reasoning. He says, you shouldn't do it for all these many reasons because it's a thing of shame and you have the upstanding family and you have character in your family and you're going to bring this disgrace upon your community and you have an opportunity to be something in America. You are basically mm -hmm. a well rung up white kid. And when Tom makes his moral decision, he also starts by I'm saying, well, then, I'm going to do this. And in some ways, I think what Twain's going, it's such a little word, well, then, but Tom, we are, you know, we, we don't read with that kind of attentiveness, but we were just given 10, 15 chapters before Huck's explanation introduced by Weldon. And now we want Tom to explain himself and he doesn't say anything. Uh -huh. He embarks on this insane scheme to liberate Jim from his ground level prison with rope ladders and files baked into pies and makes it into an adventure tale he takes out of books. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's really interesting. That's that's a good ear. That well then, it's because it's um, it's kind of also one of those moments of contract. You know, well then, done deal. Well then, right? It's it's a punctum. You know. Yeah. Yeah. This is very interesting. Very interesting. Hmm. And of course, they can't reason. They can't reason their way out of this. They don't have. They don't. They don't have any opportunity to have a developed, reasoned response to this thing that that, that is embedded in them from their culture. So it's partly that that they don't have the the equipment. But it feels deeper and more mysterious than that. It's almost like this welling up of a, of a of a profound morality almost like the, the forgive me but the 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 dharma rises and says this is the way this goes well then you know um it's a very strange moment that's actually really nice it's kind of the dharma because the whole story is propelled forward they're on the mississippi which is a metaphor for life and also america in a certain way and there's a kind of they keep and at this moment it's almost like they are yielding to the momentum they're part of. They are not. Yes, absolutely. They're, not, they're yielding to the river. Yeah, and there's not this much agency. And what's amazing, but Twain doesn't really, I mean, it's kind of complicated here because then, of course, we also know Tom is, and other people, this predict Dave Hickey, 
as called it's a sociopath what he then does with jim because jim is technically already free and mm -hmm. Tom lawyer knows this and he wants to just say let me just play out this grand fantasy of yep. Yep. you and jim totally plays along yep yep and on you know this this gaslighting that has gone on right and left that I don't want to something else like oh I know the river one of the things listening to it today even in this um, this man who who the actor who could not capture at all the range of dialect wow. which Garrison Keillor does so brilliantly because he can really speak it um, nevertheless you could hear it I was so struck by the lengthy deep immersion in the natural world in the in the river and in Huck's, Huck's extraordinary and agile and intelligent way of reading the signs of nature you know and this in the the, the sense of the we get to a, a narrative crisis and then the river takes over and Huck is resting or he's sleeping and the, the river is flowing and flowing and flowing. And you feel that kind of natural current running through the novel mm -hmm. and, um, and eloquent descriptions of the stars and of the sounds of the animals. There's one point also where he hears an, an ax ring and it's far enough away. So the sound travels, he sees the ax before the sound hits him, you know, incredibly sharp, observation and love of this of this river it reminded me a little bit of um, the river in in Kim a, a book that has been misread in many of the same ways and has many of much the same power as this one does um, I think those two books would be a great bookends for for this um, um, and presents many, I mean, presents the same problem of colonialism and racism and all the ways you could, you know, dismiss what's going on at the same time, an extraordinary. But of course, in that book, <laughs> um, the, the, the Lama, the, the great sage is looking for the river. He's looking for the river through the whole book. And he's looking actually for the Ganges and for a holy place to, to, to do his work and uh, not to be a spoiler, but you, you learn as the climax comes that the river is the river of pilgrims that he's been walking in all this, the whole time. Oh, wow. It's, it's oh, exquisite. Beautiful. It is just so beautiful. It is just, it's one of my, my late husband's and my favorite books. And my husband had the best ear of anyone I've ever known. So <laughs> there you go. And there you are. <laughs> Oh, that's beautiful. But he had a, an ear for language, you're saying. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But I so think anyway, I, I, I understand just... that for a moment, that actually what you just said, I mean, first of all, that's very moving that the river is the river he's in already of pilgrims. Yeah. But also that it connects to your husband's ear for language, that the rhythm of this book is itself, the language is this river. And I think there's something odd to me when Huck and Tom they don't really say anything. They say more or less, well then I'll do it and I'll let these words stay said. As if they put them out and now they're taking on their own life and they're, yeah. carrying, they're carrying them forward. It's like a promise, as you said, it's a performative speech act. Well then, it's a contract and it'll carry us forward into yeah. some other place. And of course the whole fantasy is that they're gonna be taken to a place they don't know yet. Frontier or something like that. They want to get to a new place, a free place. Uh, a free place. Um, I have one, one important point and one minor point. So let me not forget the 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 minor point is that that 
one of the essays in that anthology by James Cox calls the struggle with morality and religion in this book Nietzschean, <laughs> which I thought would very ple much please our dear our dear colleague. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. I can't but the other the point, more important point is, as that book goes on toward that toward the lameness of its ending, which I continue to experience as lame. It's not just a, a judgment. It's the, the way I feel it reading it. I felt that as a child, I have to say. I remember thinking, this is, this is, this doesn't go anywhere. This is, I, you know, I don't like this, right? Mm -hmm. This, this ending. Mm -hmm. I feel like the, the, the current of the river is lost. Mm -hmm. somewhere. And I'd have to read it again with my with my ears open, as my as my one of my teachers says. No, yeah. no, no. Hear with your other ears, Cleo. <laughs> I have to read it with my other ears to find out to really sense into where I feel that that current disappears. Um, as I remember, they're not even near the river in that ending. I may be misremembering that, Uli. You may um, you may remember better than I do. But it's interesting you're saying that the kind of um, there's a false note or something seems to be wrong. I said, yeah. I got to reinforce your point by when Hemingway says um, you can stop reading where Nick Jim is stolen from the boys. That is the real end. The rest uh -huh. yeah. is just cheating. And then I'll tell you what Ralph Ellison says. He says, uh, so thoroughly have the Negro, both as man and symbol of man, been pushed into the underground of the American conscience that Hemingway missed completely the structural, symbolic, and moral necessity for that part of the plot in which the boys rescued Jim. Yet it is precisely this part which gives the novel its significance. Without it, except as a boy's tale, the novel is meaningless. And Allison says, here we see actually how the problem of the morality of America is basically founders and collapses because the moral reality of Jim is no longer recognized. He said, without that, we think the book is kind of a nice book and these two boys liberate the slave and we're done. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I it's, agree. I, I agree. Very interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very okay. good. There's this huge yeah. debate, like it's really remarkable that people actually, and what I find amazing that this is just a children's book and people debate the ending and they feel something is at stake. And I wonder whether people want the ending to do something that no book could do, which is to resolve this moral crisis. That's my feeling. That's my feeling. That, And that's what when I say um, that Twain hit the limit. Now, it is a rare and high achievement to hit the limit. <laughs> you know? right. Kafka said, from knowing the real enemy, boundless strength flows into us. Right. We hope so. <laughs> and he hit the limit there and he could not imagine, nor could he bring off something that was not yet, not yet manifest, able to manifest in American life and may still not be able to manifest in American life. I think that's the challenge for us today that we may still not, if you gave, you know, some writers the assignment and say, you know, endure this troubling book and please rewrite the ending. What are they going to come up with? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It, what, what it, it's a profoundly happy ending. It's full of deception. It's cruel mm -hmm. mm -hmm. in a way. It's it's a weird letdown that he's already free. Wait, it's a technicality that is not brought about by any political change, but just the fear of God and this widow who owned him. Like basically, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a really pathetic gesture in the sense of full of pathos. So therefore, not reasoning, but rather something else. And 
what would be the good ending for Huckleberry Finn? Ah, great question. Really you know? great question. Yes, 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 yes. And what are the you you taught me with your with your wonderful lecture on Hemingway to and what are the stories that lurk on the margins of this that were not written, like the 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 slave who tells um, Huck to go find the water moccasins. Yes which is yeah. how he gets to Jim. There's this underground connection among the slaves right. and the oppressed where, where they have a, a lot of agency. You know, there's a lot going on there. And you, you feel that slightly off stage through the whole thing. And for me, I, I wanted to say, okay, would somebody write, write about that guy who took Huck to see the water moccasins or write about the, the slaves later on who uh, protect them? I can't remember exactly. There are several points in which the slave, other slaves protect them right. and protect Huck as well. And also um, when they're, uh, they're, when that hilarious, that, that really was funny because Huck is just so inventive when he persuades those guys that, that there's smallpox on the raft. I know, it's great. It's just, it's just totally brilliant. You know, you're watching a Twain level storyteller there. <laughs> Twain has created his alter ego in them. Um, it's a moment when, these guys want to go to go to the raft and see what's going on. And Jim, uh, Huck knows if they go, they're going to discover Jim and take him back into bondage. And then at the spur of the moment, he doesn't say very much. He just says, oh, it's just my pap and my sister and they have a fever. They're not so well. And everybody has turned us away. And he's really pathetic and meek. And, and, and then they say, boy, what are you talking about? He says, oh, I don't know. But it's weird that no one really wants to take us in. Mm -hmm. wait wait what 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 and yeah. <laughs> they're, they're filling in they're actually thinking for him and he gives them so little knowing yeah, that yeah. suspicious so it's very brilliant in terms of language he just gives him a sense to listen to him and be a little bit suspicious suddenly and he's play acting as if he's a naive little child yeah it's yeah really it's just great. totally great and he takes a lot of risks there because he lets them get quite close. Right, right. And, and really, he just, he's so artful in the way that he does that. And then there's that funny dance of the cruelty and the kindness in the, in the men. They leave him money and they're, they're, they try to coach him as to how to, to solve this problem. And you're constantly with the, with, the, with the white people, you're constantly going back. It's almost like a, a shimmer. You're going back between the incredible, oblivious, ignorant cruelty and this kind of running kind of kindness too. you know, this very, very. But what, what made me think of that episode was the those men are chasing five runaway slaves. Right. And I'm like, let's hear about them. <laughs> you know? I mean, I, I, I feel like like Toni Morrison took up the challenge so brilliantly you know, and carried the story forward in the only way it could be carried forward, which is we can't solve it. We can we can reframe it in terms of of the other the other agency that's at work. And my understanding of some of Morrison's work was I think she's tried to say, OK, so we have a few problems. One of them is kind of white freedom is thought without a black freedom in America, as if it's sort of you can get it for free. And she said, mm -hmm, yep. then she also said, we have a big problem that black characters just prop up white characters as yeah. and they're not delineated. And then she said, I think by writing Beloved principally in other books, she said, so here we have choices that people will actually reduce too quickly to saying, oh, all black people are only acting always in response to external circumstance. Of mm -hmm, course, mm -hmm. But she said the interiority 
has no space. So I'm going to give you an entire book of the interiority of a woman who makes an impossible choice mm -hmm. to prove how awful this all was. That's a given from the get-go, but to say what humanity does under these kinds of conditions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's really remarkable. Toni Morrison has this amazing sentence. So she says, removing the book, which people want to do, um, you know, obviously people want to do because the N-word is too difficult for people to deal with, I think, in teaching. I think it is rather difficult. And I talked to three people in the last two weeks who stopped teaching the book entirely. And I went to the Mark Twain archive at the University of California at Berkeley, and they said, this book is no longer being assigned in schools. It's just like it's become kind of untouchable, which is, which is a fact. And then Toni Morrison, this is a really remarkable sentence. She says, removing the book, extends Jim's captivity on into each new generation of readers. She says in a way, morally, you keep Jim trapped in this book by not actually reading and reading the way you were reading and saying, giving Jim his due to yeah. say, this is what he's doing to escape his own condition. There's a huge amount of agency. He's not the passive victim drifting down the river with a boy. Yeah. He's actually man, sort of masterminding all this, literally masterminding it. Mm -hmm. and Toni Morrison to say, by removing this book, you keep him in captivity. It is an incredible, brilliant twisting of brilliant. political oh. censorship with a moral obligation toward a character. And in uh -huh. some ways, I think she says something like, removing the book traps this whole phenomenon of the nightmare and cruelty of slavery as if it's still there, but we have to resolve it because it hasn't been resolved at all. For her, for Morrison, it hadn't been resolved in the 1980s. It hadn't been resolved. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that's just, that's a brilliant comment. It's, it's brilliant and you sort of, you can't really go beyond it because she puts you in a catch-22. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, <you're fine>. Absolutely. <laughs> really, really lovely, Uli, yeah. And she has these weird moments in her essays, really brilliant moments. She goes from these very incredibly learned, sophisticated readings to saying two things. Here he fails as an artist, and here's your obligation now as a reader. Oh, fantastic. And that, I, could, I could say that about every single censored classic we have in the canon. You know, just no, just no. I, I'm almost coming to blows with a good friend of mine over this. <laughs> Who wants to stop teaching it? Um, the hard thing is, like, yeah. and like, what is your friend's position? Like, I can see why people are exasperated and why not everybody is qualified. And at the level of Ellison and Morrison, I'm not even close to anything like that. So I just learned from people like this. But I feel, how do you get a book plus the nuanced reading? It's very difficult. And I, I don't want to- Very wanna... difficult. Right. Uh, it, it, for me, it uh, goes, well, for him, it's this word and this, all that goes with it are so um, unbearably painful to my students of color right. that why would I want to put them through that um, when there are other brilliant things to read? That's that's sort of his his line. I can see that in a way to say, okay, there's only so much time in the and we have, so maybe this is a book. Uh, is it the first book on the list? It cannot be the book alone anymore. Uh, mm -hmm, which I certainly I, agree with, yeah. And you can flip the question though, but if you want to, if students are interested in saying, I want to understand American culture and I mm -hmm. want to understand American literature to say, to not do this book, you're missing actually 
one of the great engagements with its problem. And you can say from the beginning, we can look at this book as a failure in certain mm -hmm. ways. Something mm -hmm. here are failures or they mm -hmm. are, and they were failures as you said from the beginning. People tried to censor it from a month after it was published. People tried to take that book out of libraries and public schools. It's not exactly new, this controversy. The, the, the problem I'm up against in having these conversations with people, um, and again, it, it puts me um, out of the mainstream of American life, which is where I've always been. But that's maybe a good. I don't think you can just. I don't think you can understand. One can make the argument that we want to make for this book, without talking about aesthetic judgment, because his point is you could teach five other novels of that period that don't use that word, some of them written by people of color. Um, and why wouldn't you teach those rather than this one? <laughs> and I, I, my, my position is because this one is a great book and those are minor books. Now that kind of ascetic judgment went out in my generation, it left the room, right? Um, and, and I believe that it's crucial to the to the development of a of a of a um, a mature sensibility to understand the necessity of making judgments like that because it's like everything else we're making them all the time anyway. I think so too. Uh, but I can't justify that without saying to my friend, "This is a better book than those books," right. and he doesn't he doesn't feel comfortable with that language of judgment, of aesthetic judgment. It's an aesthetic judgment, not a judgment about content or meaning or impact or what, it's a pure aesthetic judgment. Um, do you see what I'm saying? I may be overstating my case there. I think but... I would say something. I think what you're saying is very clear to me. And I think the consequence is when you make an aesthetic judgment, it will ultimately be informed by lots and lots and lots of reading and thinking, but it's ultimately a deeply personal judgment. Yes, yes. Not readily in a kind of Kantian way. Yes, exactly. Yes. Very deeply personal. And one of the results of such a judgment will be it's very alienating because people will not agree. And most people don't agree because they actually don't have an aesthetic judgment of yep, the work. They exactly. Don't know how to get there, and that's actually okay. And I don't really, they don't need to have this, but that cannot be the reason why we don't have such judgments for them to say, well, that's just a way to evade politics. I'm saying that's yep. a different category. Mm -hmm. I can say this book is, um, I mean, this is also, this is tricky, but in some ways, it, you will be isolated. You said you're outside of the yes, main. You will ab absolutely. I mean, my, I can testify to that. Believe it's me. It's a very alienating I, and depressing experience to yep. be in, right? Which I uh, certainly encountered in writing about T.S. Eliot as well. Um, but uh, all I have to say about that, I feel like I feel like Huck. I may go to hell for this, but this is it. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm I'm saying this, and I'm sticking to it. Well then. <laughs> Well, and, and I feel I feel like kind of my whole project with this podcast and these books I'm doing is to think, okay, so I actually think it would be a very easy luxury for me to just not deal with these books. Yes. I think the hard thing was is what I learned from people like Morrison, from Harold Bloom, from my teacher Barbara Johnson, who was the first teacher who assigned 14 black women writers to me, like really uh, people said, 
you have it easy. You can ignore these books because these books touch on something so difficult that other people cannot avoid. And Morrison would have been the first one to say to me, you feel free to ignore that book. You think I had a choice to ignore this? Yes, 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 yes. So I yes. think it becomes a very weird sort of easy way out for people who are in some kind of privileged position to say, I won't deal with it. I think it's very different, as you said, when a student, and I, I, I assume that I don't want to deal with this book, and mm -hmm. a student would never say, oh, I need to assign this book to teach you that racism existed. That's not my class. My class is not about this. My teaching is not about this. I taught a Ralph Ellison story, A Party Down at the Square, which is a harrowing, impossible story. And I it, is, it is that, yep. In 97, and I thought, what, I don't know, what possessed me to teach this story in a very large lecture course. And a student walked out of the class in the middle of class, grabbed her book bag, her coat, walked out. It was pretty difficult as a teacher to deal with this. I kept on mm -hmm. teaching. And then she came to my office hour a while later and I said, I'm really, I want to acknowledge and apologize that I think you may have left the class because we were teaching. I was talking about the story with Ellis and she said, oh, yeah, I certainly am not going to sit in a class where people read a story where the N-word is used freely about a lynching and actually say that word. And I didn't remember when anybody said the word. I certainly didn't, but maybe another student did. Mm. And she said, but you should teach that story every semester at NYU. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And uh -huh. I said, and it was, not, it was a profound and not a simplistic statement. She said, yes. I do not need to be in your, the room reading this, but you should teach it every time. Uh-huh, yeah. Which is a way to shift that to say, oh, we're not, not teaching it because it's truly upsetting for lots of people, but we're teaching it because it's an obligation to engage with that. Yes, yes, yes. It's, it's a, but as you said, you're, you're outside of many conversations at that point, right? Yes, you are. You are. You are. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I want to thank you. Um, uh, we're going to, we can talk about T.S. Eliot next time. That's a whole nother, you know. It's a whole nother story. <laughs> and we can talk about, I would like to talk about Kim too. Oh, yes, I would love that. I think that would be very interesting. I, I've thought a lot about I haven't written on Kim, but I've, I've, I've thought a lot about that book. And I think the, the problems it presents are, are rather similar, which is interesting. It's um, interesting. I, you know, I, I would like to talk about Tim, the, Kim, the other big river book is Heart of Darkness. Yeah, I, yeah. Oh, yeah. That I have written about. <laughs> and that would, it's interesting, these kind of river allegories that kind of, yeah. It's still yeah. so powerful to us, but I, that Kim, I would love to do. So I, I'm just going to remind our readers, I will actually find a way, if that's okay, I'll make available this essay in Harold Bloom's anthology that you wrote about the kind of semiotic capacities of Jim. It's tricky to find, but I think I can wait to, I can probably find yeah. a, a shortcut to make it available because okay. I, I think Harold would be happy that we- Harold would be very happy. Harold, would, Harold was- was a, a remarkably generous human being, and he would be very happy. <laughs> I mean, he was always incredibly generous. He was really. He was a, a he was a generous man, yeah. and he was he was a an incredible reader. Um, and incredible, he, incredible and being. He, yeah. yeah, we could actually sometime, Uli, I we could do a podcast on Harold. Oh, you know, I'd love to do a podcast on Harold with another friend of mine who worked for Harold for Chelsea uh -huh. two years at Yale. Uh huh. Okay. He, he prepared a couple of volumes on playwrights, mm -hmm. and, and I do think uh, at this point, 
we could do well to have a Harold Bloom sort of navigate the culture wars, you know, and he's not. Oh, Alan. absolutely. Absolutely. And one of his later books, I can't remember the title, is a kind of um, apologia por providus sua, a, a statement about what it meant to him to be a literary critic. And I wrote to him, I said, Harold, I think I may be uh, unusual in your experience and probably maybe one of the very few readers that read that book and cried, right? And uh, because the the sense of vocation was so clear in it, and it was it was you know, it was never mind the fallout, never mind the ostracism, never mind the ridicule. Here I stand, you know. It was it was really lovely. Yeah. So all kudos to that. Great, Uli. Just a lot Thank of fun to talk. I'm going to remind our listeners, this is a conversation with Cleo McNally Kearns. So thank you so much, Cleo, for joining me today. My pleasure. My pleasure. Great yeah. job. Great job. Uh, really great joy. And uh, I will take you up on that. And I, I think of um, two other people, someone who worked with Harold and maybe it's, I, I know a lot of people who knew him, but I think it would be interesting to sort of take stock of him as a critic of what that meant and why that meant so much to him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Uli, that's worth a, that might be worth a session somewhere. Yeah, I'll be happy to do it. Yeah, yeah I'll be happy yeah. to do it. Yeah, I think, I think it really would. I, 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 I'm hoping your readers are now, we'll, we'll cut this ending out. I don't want to go on and on and on. But I did, I did write about Harold and the question of whether there is an American religion. And uh, I'm not sure it was one of my greatest performances, but I, I'll reference it and think about it again and maybe maybe come up with something better. Um, yeah, great. Great to talk to you, Uli. I feel great to talk to you. I love solidarity it. and sustenance and nourishment. Thank you so much. And, and I'm happy to be uh, troubled and that we're outside of an American conversation. Like, I think it would be that's I think that's the most we can hope for from Huckleberry Finn, that we place ourselves outside. And sort of... <laughs> yes. And we can light out for the territories. That's right. OK, thanks so much. Okay. Talk to you again. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Bye. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.